Meditation is an invitation to explore silence and to explore stillness. In this teaching, we're very much encouraged to let go very unconditionally of all of our words and all of our concepts, of all of the things that we have previously known, and the words and definitions and descriptions that we've used to describe our knowing of the world and of ourselves. As we sit, it becomes clear many times that so many of the images and the judgments, the conclusions and the knowing that we possess, that what they do is simply to clutter up the silence within us. And I feel that all of us have an intuition that underneath the knowing, underneath the descriptions and the definitions, there is a level of stillness, a depth of awareness, which is truly the source of wisdom, of compassion, of understanding. And so the very practice that we do here is really an encouragement not to linger anywhere, not to dwell upon anything, so that we can experience a greater immediacy, more immediate access to the steps of silence within ourselves. Now every teaching, every tradition really informs us that so many of the words and conclusions and knowing that we so desperately hold on to can never be a true description of anything at all. That the words and the descriptions that we hold on to are like reflections of the moon on water. So, teacher in uh, India called Manindra and he said something once to a friend of mine, which I thought was really a remarkable statement. He said, the thought of your mother is not your mother. Isn't this true about all of our thoughts? The thought of our mother is not our mother. The thought of ourself is not ourself. The thought of another person is not the other person. That the words and the descriptions that are thought so much express, what they tend to do is they tend to fill us with conclusions. And in conclusions, in believing in conclusions about anything at all, about another person, about ourselves, about our, our version of reality, in believing in conclusions, we are really tempted again and again to mistake the unreal for the real. And our conclusions always lead to a very partial way of seeing anything at all. Because every conclusion carries with it a certain 
belief system, opinions, prejudice that limit, can only ever limit our way of seeing ourselves or our way of seeing another person. Now in this practice, all of that tendency of mind to, to dwell in conclusions, to live in these constructed realities, is so much challenge, so much of this journey is really an invitation to immerse ourselves in silence. Not just the silence of the spoken word, but also the silence of not knowing, the silence of not holding anything, not holding on to anything. And this really suggested that if we are able to do this, if we are willing really to explore this, then essentially a universe of unending possibilities will open to us. That we will come to discover a quality of freedom that's not dependent or conditioned by any words, any judgments, any beliefs. But where we will find the great depths of peace and joy. This kind of silence an invitation in the Zen tradition is called the beginner's mind. And Suzuki Roshi describes it. Our original mind includes everything in itself. It is always rich and sufficient in itself. You should not lose your self-sufficient state of mind. This does not mean a closed mind, but actually an empty mind and a ready mind. If your mind is empty, it is always ready for anything. It is open to everything. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. Now, as we experience this invitation to silence, it's not always an easy one to embrace. Words are terribly important to us. Our thoughts play an entirely central role in our lives. They tell us how to relate to things, how to respond, what we should like or dislike, what we should pursue and what we should avoid. Our thoughts are so often at the forefront of our consciousness, telling us about what is safe and what is not safe. And our words offer to us, of course, a way of a way of making the world and making ourselves familiar, making other people familiar and known to us. Whatever is familiar and whatever is known to us has an appearance of security and definition. And to be deprived of security and definition is of course equated in our minds with being afraid. Words are like the stage upon which the eye dances. And the ultimate security is to be able to say inwardly, I am, I have, and I know. When we feel a certainty, a sense of certainty in ourselves within this Trinity that we come to worship, we feel we have found the ultimate kind of safety. Now, 
The moment that we enter retreat, we begin to explore silence. Now sometimes people welcome the verbal silence of a retreat with a great sigh of relief because it frees us of a lot of burdens, the silence of a retreat. You know, we don't have to make a wonderful impression upon anybody. We don't have to be a sparkling personality. We don't have to kind of win friends and applause. We don't have to uh, be careful of what we say, that we don't hurt anybody's feelings or make a fool of ourselves. Suddenly, the, the verbal silence of a retreat is at times an opportunity to lay down a whole lot of this kind of proving of ourselves and, and craving for affirmation. And logically then, being able to lay down all those burdens for a time in our life, you know, you would think it would be a very joyous time, the opportunity to be silent. Initially it may be, and yet it is often experienced also as really being quite a difficult space, this verbal silence of a retreat. In the verbal silence of a retreat, what we have is like our personal hall of mirrors. And it's not always flattering what we see. Sometimes in the verbal silence of a retreat, we become aware of how much we actually rely upon the approval and affirmation of others, how much we rely on asserting our credentials in the world, in order to know who we are. We're also aware that when we sit, when we come into the verbal science of retreat, most people find they really do have a number of thoughts about other people, about the other people they're sitting with. There's about a whole variety of thoughts and opinions and ideas that pass through their minds. And of course, it's, it's logical to assume that everybody else's mind is working in exactly the same way. But we have no way to test this. So we are left, essentially, with this hall of mirrors. And a lot of things happen in it. We're aware. You know, sometimes we smile at someone and they, they give us a stony look. And we feel terribly kind of devastated and rejected. Sometimes we pass them in the hallway and we give them a kind of friendly, friendly nod and they turn their heads and we wonder what we've done possibly to offend them. And the worst thing, of course, that happens in the silence of a retreat is if the person who sits beside you or, your, or the person who shares a room with you moves and move somewhere else. We have no idea what we have done, what terrible thing we have done to offend them. But most often we're sure it's our fault. We must have done something. I know maybe it's my socks or, you know, my soap or my lack of soap or whatever it is, but we become very convinced that it must be my fault. And what is happening, of course, is that this verbal silence is depriving us of certainty. We can no longer tell who we are by how somebody else sees us. And often in our lives, we do tell 
We do know who we are by how other people see us, by the feedback that we receive from others, by the relationships we form with others. Then we have a sense of who we are, how to feel about ourselves. Even we get some hints by how other people feel about us. And when we are left with just this silence, this not knowing, this hall of mirrors, we begin often to have to form entirely new relationships with ourselves based on completely different reference points. Because we don't know by anybody else's feedback if we're lovable or wonderful or terrible or need to improve or whatever. So we need to form completely different reference points in our inner relationships. And often then, this is when the mind really begins to kind of shout. It has all these kind of, uh, these self-doubts, judgments, opinions, ideas, memories. Often what we are experiencing in this kind of rebellion of the mind is the sense of self seeking for a partner seeking for reassurance and seeking for safety. Because silence essentially leaves us with our inner world. And this becomes the landscape in which I seek for reassurance. Now when we listen inwardly, when we be in explore this relationship with our own being, Sometimes we, it's quite amazing what we encounter. Many times we're very surprised. Sometimes one thing that really surprises us is how much noise we carry within ourselves. And I think this awareness of our inner noise, of course, is really heightened by the outer silence. Sometimes it seems so noisy to sit with oneself. There is so much going on. Sometimes it's hard to believe how many thoughts it is possible to have. If you were to count the number of thoughts you have had today, it would be very impressive. <laughs> it would really be very, very impressive. And an interesting question to ask would be, how many of the thoughts that you have had today have really been new thoughts? <laughs> thoughts you've never had before. Really unique, precious, revealing, wise, liberating thoughts. <coughs> How many? You know, sometimes it's kind of embarrassing. You know, maybe one or two new thoughts in a day. Most of the thoughts we've had today, we've had a lot many, many times before. And another, of course, interesting question to ask is, <coughs> how much difference did any of those thoughts make to anything at all? How much difference did they make? How much did they bring clarity, bring insight, bring connectedness? How much difference did they make at all? probably not always a great deal of difference. The other interesting thing is we actually don't invite most of those thoughts. 
Now most of us don't come into a city with the intention of thinking. Now most of us don't begin a walking, you know, with a slightly you know, it's a really good opportunity to have a good think, you know, I'm just going to have a really good think during this walking, a really good think during this city. Most times we don't invite them, we don't choose them. It's interesting, isn't it? It's like there's the mind, the captive of this mind that is in love with itself, infatuated with its own capacity to be productive. Except much of the productivity of the mind, we often feel is rather unwelcome. And yet also we don't always feel we have much choice. We're also aware how tiring it is. It is so exhausting to think all the time. And when you think about it here, you know, in this environment, really, we don't do very much. You know, it's not really a lot of exertion. And we spend a lot of hours just sitting around, in a, sitting around on a cushion, and then, you know, every once in a while we get off, we get up, and we have a little toddle off, you know, very, very slowly, and then we toddle back to the cushion and sit around again. I mean, it's really not very taxing. And yet, at the end of the day, we can feel so tired. You know, as if we've been climbing mountains, you know, and, and surmounting peaks. Now, where does all of that ex- You know, really, realistically, if you think about it, most people would, you know, from the external regard, this is kind of a holiday camp, you know, a rest cure. And yet, at the end of the day, of course, we can fall into bed, you know, as if we've done something really terribly, terribly difficult. And really, where does all that exhaustion come from? Where does tiredness from sitting around come from? And a lot of the exhaustion that is experienced, especially in the beginning of a retreat, is the tiredness of the mind. It is so tired of itself. It's just so tired of itself. It is really ready for a break. It can't wait for a break. And even worse on a retreat, of course, when you go to sleep, especially in the beginning, it doesn't stop. It tends to produce all these awful nightmares and dreams, and so even even when you sleep, there seems no break. When we see this, I think especially, you know, it is really hard to figure out where the end will come. Where the end will come? It's hard to believe it's possible to have a mind which is not always dancing. And we hear, you know, that meditation is to bring peace and serenity and calmness and stillness. And we're very sure it's somebody else's meditation that's been spoken about and that we just don't have the right kind of mind for serenity. You know, we don't have the kind of mind for tranquility or calmness. That's not us. You know, that must be some other kind of person. Now, what is, see, then this is a very interesting expression, what is all this noise and busyness and thinking really about? What is it all about? Certainly, part of it is habit, but even habit, what is habit about? Part of it, of course, is trying to control, but even then, what is control all about? So much of our activity in the mind that we experience is essentially the dance of I and the dance of fear. It's the busyness of I looking for certainty, looking for a refuge, 
looking for a sanctuary within that trinity of I am, I have, and I know. Ideally, we would like to, the I would like to build a fortress out of those building blocks. Certainty represents safety. And safety, in our minds, is equated with happiness and being protected. Now, we are, of course, resigned, you know, most of us are realistic enough to be resigned to the understanding that the outer world actually cannot offer us a great deal of certainty. We know this. No matter how much we have, no matter how much we accumulate, no matter how orderly or safe things feel, it can all fall apart in a moment. And we also aware that anything we gain, we can lose. Now, this insight that we can't get certainty from things is a difficult one to transfer inwardly. We don't, are not always so willing to relinquish our desire for consumption and control and manipulation within ourselves. Now, so we find in meditation what happens is that what is often going on is an incessant search within the mind for certainty. That is why the mind is so busy. It is moving towards things. It is moving away from things. It is constructing identities. It is holding. It is resisting. It is becoming. This is why silence seems so inaccessible. What we have in the silence of a retreat, of course, is the absence of speech. We have the vehicle of attentiveness. And we have ourselves. We have an invitation extended to us constantly to let go, to empty ourselves of knowing, to be still, to listen inwardly, to trust. We have an invitation extended to us to trust that everything that we need for transformation, everything we need for understanding, lies within this moment. And we need just to be still and to listen. Now, of course, this is so simple, this invitation, that it seems wonderful, it seems wonderful, but to the I self, it is a recipe for disaster. Because it doesn't, stillness does not offer us any certainty or any guarantees or any credentials. And this is why we find ourselves struggling. Sometimes even why we see ourselves Seeking noise. Seeking noise inwardly. Because at times noise even seems desirable. Because at least we know we're doing something. Now there is much, at a very deep level, often not a very conscious level, that is frightening about this journey, this kind of exploration. This meditation is essentially a journey of the spirit. It is a profound and mystical insight. This is not something that can be measured. Insight is not something which is visible. And the I, the self, longs for that which is visible, that which is tangible, that which can be created, 
longs for things to possess, to define itself by. This journey offers to us silence, <laughs> and the self is craving words and definitions, because these are the marks by which we make things familiar to us. Deepening in this path, there's no yardstick for it, there's no yardstick for change, no, no way we can measure change, and the self longs to be able to measure things, because if we can't measure things, how do we even know how we're doing? How do we know if we're any good at this? How do we know if we're progressing? Even the path itself, we're told, is just a vehicle and just a raft and not something to be held on to, not a form to be identified with. And the sense of the self loves forms, loves institutions. To read your story, <coughs> called the Guru's Cat. When the Guru sat down to worship each evening, the ashram cat would get in the way and distract the worshippers. So he ordered that the cat be tied up during evening worship. After the Guru died, the cat continued to be tied up during evening worship. And when the cat died, another cat was brought to the ashram so that it could be tied up during evening worship. Centuries later, learned books were written by the Guru's scholarly disciples about the spiritual significance of tying up a cat while worship is performed. In many ways, we are always trying to tie up our own cat. Whenever we try to create an institution we tie up our cats. And the self is constantly trying and doing its best to create institutions. An image is an institution. It is a way of saying this is the way things are, how they will always be. When we hold on to the last sitting, we've created an institution. Think about it. You know, we have, we have a say a sitting which is really a difficult sitting and everything is, is terrible and how the mind then on the basis of that experience creates expectations of the next sitting. It's also going to be terrible. Create self-images. You know, I'm a terrible meditator. Everybody else can be still, but not me. We've created an institution. The same if we have a, a positive experience in a sitting. Aha, I, this is the way this is. This is the way I am. I have another institution. Whenever we have an image constructed of anything at all, we have compartmentalized something into the known. We say, I know you. I know this. This is the way things are. We have created an institution. Sometimes our institutions are extraordinarily difficult to let go of. Even when we engage in a great deal of doing to get rid of the I, which appears to be such a problem, we are trying to get rid of an institution we have created 
which is not based upon anything substantial at all. What grasping does, what identification does, is that it creates static and frozen centers out of fluid and changing processes. This is what grasping does, outwardly and inwardly. It creates static and frozen centers out of that which is fluid. And those centers become the realities that we inhabit. Now, I think it is clear that grasping identification is painful. That's basically what it is. It is painful. No matter how gross or how subtle clinging is, its offspring is pain. Because clinging separates us from what is. It separates us from actuality. It, it imprisons us in limited ways of seeing the world or ourselves. We know this. We experience it often. We don't need any experts to tell us this. Our whole life tells us this. The difficulty is that the eye does not believe that grasping is painful. It simply doesn't believe it. The self actually believes that grasping is pleasure or mistakes pain in some distorted way perceives pain as pleasure even though all of us have endlessly experienced loss, separation, <coughs> fail, disappointment, failure, disappointment, disillusionment, uh, things not conforming to expectations it is so hard for us to learn the lessons of this so hard to learn the lessons of our lives. Instead, we often feel that the way we're going to recover from disappointment or the way that we're going to recover from, from disillusionment or the way that we're going to recover from loss is by grasping hold of something else. This is how we often perceive recovery from the painful which has been created by grasping is to grasp hold of something else. This is a little bit like looking at a moth, which is constantly coming back to the flame. It is, even though its getting, wings are getting burnt, it simply can't stop that returning. I equate pleasure with certainty and security. And I believe that certainty and security is found through grasping and identification. Now, it is possible that the self simply cannot learn this lesson, can't learn the lesson that certainty and security and pleasure that are dependent upon grasping are actually pain. Because to believe this, would leave the self with nothing to do. It wouldn't have anything to do anymore. You know, if it doesn't have anything to grasp hold of, essentially the self doesn't have anything to do. If it's not looking for something to grasp hold of, or if it's not recovering from grasping through grasping hold of something else, the self actually really doesn't have anything to do. So what would, what would it do? What would happen? 
What would happen if we had no grasping? Well, who would I be? How would I know I was safe? How would I find protection? How would I even know the world? When there is no grasping, it is actually very, very difficult to find the I. Now, in many ways, we do learn a lot of lessons from our life experience. We learn not to be so deceived by the things that we grasp hold of. We learn not to be so swept away by our craving, our desire for control. And then that comes into our being, and a lot of this is what meditation practice is about, is more spaciousness, more spaciousness, more capacity to see what is going on and to learn from what is going on. We find also that the more present we are, the happier we are. That's a basic lesson. We find that the more connected we are with this moment, the happier we are. And the happier that we are means that we don't rely so much upon grasping for happiness. That does develop greater equanimity, greater com- compassion, greater balance. We're not so ensnared by, by judgment, by images, by resistance. All of this is something that we can measure. All of these changes that we can see. And yet still we might find that there is this movement going on, this kind of underlying tension, this underlying noise still taking place of the self really always on alert, always, always looking for something to, to take hold of, always looking for what is dangerous, looking for what is threatening. And we may still feel that there is some level of silence that we are not yet at home in. It is important. I think to be at home, really at home in silence, to truly feel at ease in silence, we need to understand very, very clearly the language of I. And the vocabulary of the self is incredibly basic. It's not not complicated. The vocabulary of the self is the language of pleasure and pain. Pleasure, the capacity to grasp hold of pleasure, supports the eye. This is why there is in our culture, in our world, so much addiction to the pleasant experience, the hungry mind that rampages through the world. Pain threatens the eye. This is why, too, in our world, we find so much energy given to avoidance and suppression and being numb. These two actualities of pleasure and pain fuel the dance of I. They're what create so much busyness and noise and also separation. Because we must see, as long as we're engaged in that dance of moving, of grasping, of avoidance, then there's always separation. There's always separation and separation in itself is painful. Now the I misnames pleasure as happiness and this is a basic mistake and the basic source of so much pain in our lives to mistake pleasure for happiness. 
It is not that in this practice we're encouraged to kind of deny pleasure, but to be able to see pleasure as pleasure, the pleasant as the pleasant, and not to mistake the pleasant for happiness. The self retreats from pain to aversion or suppression or distraction or denial or resistance. And this is a movement that consumes so much energy. And the self seeks for the solution to pain through the pleasant experience. We see this again and again in our meditation. And it is so worthwhile to look at it so clearly, to see what is going on in that dance. You know, how we replace boredom with fantasy. How when we have an unpleasant mental state, we're immediately inclined to pull out the strategies that are going to solve it or get rid of it. How when we enter into a moment of unpredictability, the I will be seeking for certainty. We see it in meditation if you have even a moment's rest, a moment's quietness how the eye will come in with this grand knowing voice. You know, it says, aha, now I'm quiet. You know, now I'm paying attention. Now I'm really aware. You know, how there's nothing that seems to be sacred from the self and its desire for grasping. And it is just really worthwhile to really see it in the meditation, this movement towards and this movement away from. And how much of that movement becomes so compelling and so compulsive and how much it is really founded upon the grasping for pleasure and the fear of pain. There is no lasting happiness that is ever found in the realm of I have and I know or I am. And this is the only territory that the I can travel. Now, Peace, the peace that is spoken about in meditation, this is not meaning that, you know, there's nothing challenging arising, nothing disturbing, nothing difficult arising. This is not what peace in meditation is about. If we want this kind of peace, we would be far better advised to take some tranquilizers. Because then we can find this kind of peace, you know. It's the mind that's not working. Not the cessation of self, it's just the mind is kind of, uh, you know, has this kind of legs kicked out from under it for a moment. But this is not peace. The peace in meditation is something entirely different. It has nothing to do with the presence or the absence of the pleasant or the unpleasant. The peace that is really offered to us in meditation is the peace of non-clinging. The peace of not grasping. That only in the cessation of clinging do we cease to be conditioned by what we cling to. This is, could be our basic manual in meditation. Only in the cessation of clinging do we cease to be conditioned by what we cling to. So if we don't want to go through endless rounds and cycles of becoming, of becoming this, becoming that, of being pushed and pulled by the mind, by its judgments and by its beliefs, then the actual solution is really very simple. Not to quit. Not to grab hold of anything. 
and there is no being conditioned by anything. In the cessation of clinging, we cease to be molded by objects, by thoughts, by mental states, by feeling, by anything that is conditioned. To cultivate the non-dwelling mind is to cultivate non-clinging. To cultivate the mind that dwells nowhere, that clings to nothing, that seeks no certainty, is to strip ourselves of knowing, of having, of becoming. There's no higher happiness and no deeper peace and to strip ourselves of the dwelling mind, to learn to cultivate non-dwelling in all things. This non-dwelling is not some point that we arrive at later on in the path. You know, it's not something we graduate to when we get better at meditation. It's not something that kind of senior, senior meditators do. They sit down and practice non-dwelling while other people practice attention. Non-dwelling is what this path is all about. Simply, not to dwell, not to linger upon anything. Because non-dwelling is truly silence. It's truly silence. In non-dwelling, we're not spurred into, into grasping or into resistance. There's a great accommodation a vast capacity to embrace what is without being conditioned in any way. That capacity to embrace, that stillness of embracing, that vastness of awareness, this is silence. I'd like to <coughs> read you the, the Buddha was asked, what should the mind dwell upon? And the answer is, it should dwell upon non-dwelling. What is non-dwelling? It means not dwelling upon anything whatsoever. What does that mean? Dwelling upon nothing means that the mind doesn't remain with good or evil, with being or non-being, inside or outside, emptiness or non-emptiness, concentration or distraction. This dwelling upon nothing is the state in which to dwell. Those who attain it are said to have non-dwelling minds. In other words, they have Buddha minds. As long as your mind dwells upon nothing, there is nothing to be attached to. If you want to understand the non-dwelling mind very clearly while you are sitting in meditation, only be, be aware only of the mind. And, not, and make no judgment. Do not think in terms of good, bad, or anything else. Whatever is past is past, so don't sit in judgment upon it. For when thinking about the past disappears by itself, it can be said there is no longer any past. Whatever is in the future hasn't arrived, so don't direct your hopes and longings toward it. For when thinking about the future disappears by itself, it can be said there is no future. Whatever is present passes instantaneously. Be aware of your non-attachment to all things. Don't nourish any desire or aversion in your mind. For when thinking about the present disappears by itself, it can be said that there is no present. 
A mind that dwells upon nothing is the Buddha mind, enlightenment mind, uncreated mind. This realization that the nature of all appearances is unreal. It is what the sutras call the patient realization of the uncreated. A mind that is truly free has reached the state in which opposites are seen as empty and that this is the only freedom. Non-dwelling can be our relationship to all things, our way of seeing, even to itself, not even to be attached to non-dwelling, not even to dwell upon realization of non-dwelling, but just to see to be still, to allow things to be, to linger nowhere, to take hold of nothing, also means that there's nothing to fear and nothing to resist. This is the greatest peace in meditation. This is the happiness of meditation. And this is truly the silence of awareness. May all beings Died in stillness. May all beings died with clarity. May all beings live with wisdom. <laughs>